In short, any problem that I've ever had, drinking was pretty much involved. Didn't have a care in the world. And then, you know, found opiates. I think I really just had fear of getting sober. I think that was my, like, I didn't know how to live any other way. Drugs and alcohol were my solution. Tonight on Addiction Talk, featuring Cassie Underwood. She's been featured in the New York Times, Women's Health, and Marie Claire for her transformational story of healing from addiction, depression, and anxiety. Cassie's not only an author and a spiritual teacher, but she's also Harvard's first meditation advisor and the host of the Big Energy Podcast. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Addiction Talk. And as you've seen, I'm learning a little bit about Cassie. She has a powerful story. I mean, a transformational story that has made headlines. And we're so excited to have her here tonight because there's nothing like hearing someone's story and the impact it will have on someone else. So welcome, um, Cassie, to Addiction Talk. Thank you, Joy, so much for having me. Yeah, so we, you know, we want to dive into your story because just me talking to you and learning more about how you are using your story to change lives now, I thought it was so important to have you on today to kind of share more about your journey to healing because truly sobriety is a, a, a journey to healing. So let's take me back. Let's start with the very beginning of your story. At what age did you start to realize that you had a problem with alcohol? Well, I think when I look back, I probably should have realized it with my first drink because I felt like I'd found the secret to life. I mean, the first time I took a sip of alcohol, I felt like stars were shooting out of my head and hearts. Like I just felt completely alive. And it was the solution to all of my problems. I literally felt like it fixed me. And I don't think that that is a normal reaction to taking a drink of alcohol. Um, but when I first realized I had a problem was, so when I was in college, my um, I always had a bunch of friends who were drinking, right? But I needed it. For me, it wasn't like a party thing to do. It was like, I, it was not a luxury. It was an, a necessity. It was literally like, like I needed it the way I needed to take a vitamin or the way I needed to eat my breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I needed to drink alcohol to deal with my thoughts. And uh, my dad got sober when I was 19 and I got a care package in the mail shortly thereafter. And I was like, what's it going to be? Socks? Pencils? And it was the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so wow. I opened it up. Yeah, I opened it up. And um, it was, I started relating instantaneously to what I was reading there. I mean, it was like, it like glowed for me. So I would read it while I was drinking, but I wasn't ready to get sober yet. I just knew I had a problem. Mm -hmm. So take me back. You said you needed it. It was like the need almost like taking a vitamin. Was it meaning that you were drinking daily? Like how often were you drinking and how was it consuming your life at that time? Well, I never took, I have never taken a legal drink. I quit drinking when I was 20. So um, I couldn't drink as much as I wanted to. I would have had a drink every day as soon as I started drinking if I could, but it was like based on when I could get it. If I could sneak it from my parents' refrigerator or from the liquor cabinet. And then in college, it was like, can somebody buy me alcohol? So I didn't have full access to alcohol all the time. 
Um, but by the time I realized I had a problem, I was daily, I was a daily drinker by the time I was 19. I, if I went even, even by the time it was like five or six o'clock, it felt like it was a week that had gone by before I'd had it since I'd had a drink. And so it was really, I mean, it was, it was a huge part of my life, but I could pass it off as being normal because all of my friends were drinking too. From the outside, it looked similar to them, but I knew in my heart from the inside that it was different. That I was really drinking differently. And talking about drinking differently, I know you said from that first drink, it was like, whoa, this is like yeah. problem solver. But would you drink to the point of blacking out? Would you drink to the point of just excess? Was there any other clue there for you besides just this feeling that it felt different to you, that something wasn't quite right? Was there anything else that was a clue for you? Well, it's so for a while I was le leading a double life, right? So I, I was in the honors program at school. I made straight A's. I had a boyfriend. I had a job. Um, and I also was a daily drinker who did drugs, right? Um, and I didn't black out that much. I always could handle my, my alcohol really, really well. Uh, I'm from Kentucky. I, <laughs> it's just a gift from, you know, drinking a lot of whiskey back home. I really, by the time I was in college in Vermont, I really knew how to drink. But what happened was the double life started to collapse. So suddenly um, I got I got pregnant and I had an abortion. And that was a big shock to my system because I, I never expected that to happen. And it felt very much tied up with my, my drunkenness all the time. Um, and then I lost my job. And then my boyfriend went to rehab. And then I started making C's. And then my friend started planning an intervention. So my whole life kind of started crumbling around me. And it really felt like the, I, I wasn't leading a double life anymore. Alcohol was winning. Wow. So what was it about going through, you know, that challenging time? You said the connection even to having the abortion. What was that connection to that that really also was impacting your life during that time? The connection to the abortion that was that was impacting it? I think for me, because um because it was just so surprising that I would get into this situation and people, people get pregnant and have abortions every day. And it's, and it's the right decision for them. And it, and it involves total responsibility the entire way. For me, there was, there was just, it was complete chaos. I was dating somebody who was addicted to heroin. So I was going over and like drinking in these heroin dens every night. We didn't have any money. So it was like, Oh, we can't, afford to you have condoms, you know, it's like, it was just complete, like terrible decision making over and over and over again. And then to have the consequences be that intense where I'm actually pregnant. And here I have big dreams for my life. I had a whole plan for my life and I'm 19 and pregnant. That felt like a big wake up call. But after I had the abortion, I actually drank more after that. Because mm. now I had to re reconfigure my entire identity. And did you find yourself in a place, I'm curious, that you didn't even recognize your life? You kind of talk about that. Do you have this moment, like you said, you're in college, you had these big dreams, you're in a heroin den. I mean, what is going through your mind during all of this? Like, are you having kind of an out-of-body experience? Like, is this really my life? There was, there was an out-of-body experience when I was pregnant and I wasn't drinking. So I was like stone cold sober pregnant, knowing I wasn't going to, um, going to continue the pregnancy, but still not drinking it like, because I was pregnant and I was in, I was with my, my, um, then boyfriend and he was in the bathroom doing heroin and I heard a big thump 
And in the next room, this girl was over, she had fallen over, she was ODing on heroin. And it, that was one of the moments where I was just like, oh my gosh, like, and I, and I remember running downstairs to get the car because we were going to have to drive her and drop her off at the hospital and figure out how to get out of it because we didn't want to get in trouble. And that was one of those moments where I was like, how did I get here? Like, where, like, what is going on? You know, I was, I was like, you know, raised in a kind of preppy, you know, preppy area of Kentucky and went to a private school. Like, where did this come? How did this become my life? Wow. So even in that moment when you're having that experience and you're like, how did this become my life? Was it something that happened gradual or was it something that before you even knew it, it was like day one, you're starting to drink. And before you know it, you're in this place. I think, no, in the beginning, it was just fun. In the beginning, it was fun and it fixed me. And I loved drinking with all of my friends, you know, some of a lot of whom have gotten sober since then. So I was drinking with some other alcoholics at the time and it, we were having a really good time. And then, um, and then it just suddenly, you know, kind of got all twisted up. It was like, it was like one bad semester in college kind of revealed to me, but it was like after even after all that chaos was over and he was in rehab and that relationship ended, I was left with myself and I was still drinking. So that was, that was the, the issue is I still wasn't, I still couldn't stop. You know, it was like, I I was so used to blaming, Oh, I was in, I'd be like, Oh, I'll quit drink. I don't drink as much when I'm home in Kentucky. So whenever I go home for, for breaks, I don't drink as much, but that was just a lie I was telling myself. Oh, I don't. And then I get to Kentucky and be like, well, I don't drink as much when I'm in school because I'm in school. And I go back and I'd be drinking just as much. So it's just like all these distorted lies I was telling myself to justify continuing to drink over and over and over again. So it started off fun and then it ended up getting into this big web. Which is interesting because you said that at some point your dad sent you the big book, you know, which is the Alcoholics Anonymous book. So your parents must have had some type of clue that was something was going on. Did you feel like you had been hiding it from them? Or did you feel like people around you were starting to notice? Well, it was by the time I was in that that semester with, you know, the the abortion semester, it was I think that all bets were off. And that's when he had sent me the big book before then. Um, he had just gotten sober. So and we we've always been very similar. So I didn't I don't think that they were on to me. I think they were focused on what they were going through. Um, my dad cared about me. So he sent me that. He was like, oh, she's a chip off the old block kind of thing. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so he sent that to me out of out of care and concern and was like, why don't you read this part? Why don't you read that part? But he wasn't pressuring me at all. I don't think my mom was that. Um, I, I think it's it took her a really long time to really get that I had it and that I had had a real addiction that needed to be solved. And, uh, but my friends, the people who were really onto it were my really dear friends who saw this like shift in me from the first semester I got to college to the third semester where the wheels were really coming off. They're the ones who were like, you know, we really need you to like, don't you think there's something wrong if you're worried about whether you smell like alcohol before you go out? Do you think you're drinking at an appropriate time? Like if you have to worry about what you smell like, and <laughs> like that kind of thing. Um, but the real moment was when I was, I went to Italy at a certain point. So they start, once they started planning the intervention, my friends, and then I went, I, I was like, okay, I'm out. I went home to Kentucky. I got a DUI when I was home 
for winter break. And I was, and then my parents started kind of hovering around. My dad was like, why don't you start going to meetings with me? He would come and pick me up in the car. The, and then I was like, I can't do this. I'm going to go to Italy where it's legal for me to drink. I'll be able to buy it myself. So I took out a $20,000 loan and I got a, I, I enrolled in a study abroad program and I went to Italy. Um, and what I saw when I got there reflected in the faces of, of the people I was just meeting was that I had completely changed. They didn't have like the old Cassie, like the happy party Cassie to fall back on and say like, come back, come back. They didn't have that. They just saw who I'd become. Wow. And so, like you said, you look in the mirror and you're like, who is this girl? What has happened to my life? You're trying to escape. You go to Italy because you're trying not to deal with it and escape what everybody is saying and trying to do this intervention. But yeah. what was your wake up call? What was the thing that said, Cassie, you had the big book, you had all these other things that people were saying to you. But what was it for you that clicked? Because I think yeah. that's the thing. People see a loved one who's struggling, or maybe you're struggling yourself, and you're like, why won't this click for me? I know there's a problem. Why won't this click? So I'm curious what that was for you. That's such a good point, because from the outside, it looked like I'd hit rock bottom, like over and over and over again. It was kind of like, why did, why hasn't she hit rock bottom yet? Why won't she get sober? But from the inside, I was like, I'm only 20. I still, I, I don't want to get sober yet. I was like, I know I'm going to get sober at some point, but I'm only 20 and I, and I, I'm creative when I drink, I can write. I wanted to be a writer. I was like, I can write when I drink, I can have fun when I drink, I can date people when I drink. I don't know how to do any of that sober. Like I'm an anxious, depressed mess. I can't get out of bed when I'm sober. So for me, I hadn't hit rock bottom yet because I, I needed alcohol to function and what clicked for me was I got over to Italy and within three weeks I had run completely out of money. And I like when I say out of money, I mean, I borrowed a hundred euro from my roommates to survive. I was like, I don't know what to do. I called my, my, um, my mom and I said, mom, my, uh, can you help me? Cause I, I have this credit card and it doesn't have any money on it. And she said, um, she was like, let me call your dad because they were they were getting divorced and lived together. She called my dad and he said, don't give her any more money. And she called me back and she said, I'm sorry. And so I was like in Italy, I was like, what do you mean? You're not going to give me any more money. And so I was in Italy with no money. And so I literally could not afford to drink. And I knew I literally did not have money to drink and so, unless I borrowed it. And I knew that if I went to a meeting that I could probably make it through a couple of days without drinking. So I called my dad and I kind of, and I, and I could literally could not, I didn't realize the level of not being able to not drink. And when I tried to just not drink for 24 hours, I couldn't do it. I would get all the way up to bed at 10 PM and I would put the cover, I'd have on like my pajamas and I'd pull the covers up and I wouldn't have had a drink. And I would take the covers off and I'd run back downstairs and I would spend like what, like the, the borrowed money to buy some, um, to buy some, uh, some um, wine, which was literally cheaper than water over there. And I would chug the wine and I would take four Tylenol, Tylenol PM and I would pass out. That's how I got to, to sleep. And I was like, I can't keep doing this. And so I called my dad and I was like, I don't know how to get sober. And he, um, he said, let me call you back. And called me back within 20 minutes. And he had the number of a woman in Italy who lived down the street who helped me mm -hmm. get to a meeting. 
And so that was the first meeting I went to of my own volition. I walked to this meeting in Italy because I had no money to drink anymore. And she, and, and at that meeting, they hadn't seen a newcomer in so long. They were like, hello. <laughs> they had me surrounded. And so that was the beginning of your sobriety journey. And what did it feel like? Because I wonder, I think a lot of people, when they think about getting sober and having that acknowledgement and either going to a meeting or going to treatment, there's a lot of anxiety because yeah. you said this was the only way you knew how to live. If you weren't drinking, there was anxiety, there was depression, you couldn't get out of bed. So what was it like finally kind of surrendering to some extent and saying, okay, I'm going to get help? Yeah, that's a great question. I went from having a daily anxiety attack before I got sober, where I would literally start having a panic attack and just go run down and get, you know, whiskey or whatever I could to to um, make it stop to I didn't have a panic attack for the first year I was sober. It was a total miracle. It was like, yeah. And I think I was just so surrendered. I was just like, I don't even care anymore. I don't have any friends. I don't have any money. I don't have a boyfriend. I don't have anything. You know, I didn't have a job. I had nothing. So I just was like, I don't care. Just tell me what to do. And so I placed my life in the hands of these sober people and they told me what to do. And I was like, okay, I'll make the coffee. Okay. I'll read this book with you. Okay. I'll do these steps, you know, and that surrender took, it was like my will and my ego. That's what was causing the panic, my forcing life, you know? And that surrender, you do you still remember the moment? Is it something that plays back in your head yes. over again? Yeah, because I went to that first meeting and I still wasn't, even after I called my dad crying, even after I went to the meeting, I was still like, I'm just going to do this for two weeks till, until I regain my parents' trust and they give me more money, then I'll start drinking again. I mean, I still thought that. And I went to the first meeting and I drank again after the first one over in Italy went back again. And on the way home from that one, I don't know what happened, but I can remember a click in me where I literally said to myself, I am never going to drink again. And that was 15 years ago. Whoa. So you leave this meeting, you're driving home. No, it's walking. Walking home. (laughs) You're in Italy. And you have this moment where it's just like, you just know I'm never going to drink again. Yeah. I just knew. And I would tell people, I'd be like, I'm sober now. I'm never going to drink again. And they'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, because people, after you get sober, people treat you like an addict for the next few years. So you have to like totally rebuild trust with everyone in your, in your life after that. But what's that? No, I, I, I I was just tuning into what you said. Um, But I wonder what was it that was that click? Do you know, or you just think it was all the information that you had been receiving up to that point, just there was just a light bulb moment? I think that the stars aligned. Like that's that's how I always described it in the moment or whenever I was talking about it at the time. It was like everything that happened absolutely had to have happened for me to be willing. It was just a moment of grace where the exact things happened. Like not having the respect of the people around me where I lived in Italy, being in this beautiful, amazing place where I couldn't enjoy anything because I was broke and like didn't have anybody to enjoy it with, you know, being so obsessed with alcohol and drugs that I could not be present to where I was, you know, just all that having no driver's license, having, a, you know, really lost a lot of my friends and family. It was just that all that had to happen. 
Mm-hmm. I you know, I'm curious before we kind of talk about your journey forward, yeah. were you ever angry with your parents at that point of not giving you the money or did you understand? Because I think there's a, fe- a lot of fear for yeah. parents or anybody who's watching this to say, hey, I'm not going to support you. You're in a different country. So yeah. it's bigger than just, hey, you're here, but they know you're in a different country. And they're like, your dad's like, no, don't give her any money. Did How great. did you respond to that? And what would you say to other families? On the outside, so I think, and I think we all have this like deep knowing of truth in us that even if we're like full of BS and like trying to get sympathy from others, we know when we're full of it. So I knew it was a way that I could get sympathy if I was like, my parents aren't giving me any money. Like I could tell people that, but deep down I was like, whoa, like they really did it. That's real. I totally get why they didn't give me any money. I am clearly out of control. And, um, and so, you know, if a parent is watching, don't give them any money. <laughs> like don't it's code. It's that, that the fact that they did not play into codependency that saved my life. I probably would have been dead if they had continued to pay for me and continued to co-sign all my BS. Wow. So you really think that that decision that you would be dead if they hadn't made that decision? Yeah, I thank God that that whatever who whatever was going on where they had the courage to do that. Thank God. And I know that's not easy. I can only imagine I'm a mom now and I can only imagine how hard it must have been to say no. But that probably saved my life. The fact that they didn't just try to keep me going a little bit longer, make me comfortable pad my, nobody was padding my alcoholic bottom. And that was really good. That is, I mean, do you feel like you were close? Cause at the point, the level that you were drinking, I know you said that you feel like they saved your life. Do you feel like you were on the brink of losing your life? Do you feel like it was that tangible to you? Whether it was going to be by over drinking or a drug overdose or by some, I was hitchhiking around Italy with like, I was hitchhiking alone on the back of motorcycle. And it was just really bad decisions where I would do something one week, then I'd tell my roommates and one of them would do it and they would get assaulted. So like, I, I, I don't know why I just, I don't know why, you know, those bad things didn't happen to me, but I was on the brink of something really bad happening. And I'm just like, thank God that my parents didn't co-sign any of my stuff. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Thank you to your parents too. Yeah. I know that, you know, I know now 15 years later, looking back and I want to go back to that moment. You said, you're in, you know, you're walking home. You have this epiphany like, okay, I'm never going to drink again. How did that change your life from that point moving forward? Was, I know you said you didn't have any more anxiety attacks for a whole year, but what was the transformation for you when you made that decision? What changed everything was working the 12 steps. I mean, honestly, the 12 steps were the most, like, they're so magical. I don't know. Like, I feel so lucky that I know about them. I wish that I had been given them as a manual at birth because then I probably wouldn't, they, they created in me the same They and they still do because I still practice them on a daily basis. It's a whole part of my life. They created me the same bliss that alcohol and drugs gave me. Like I work the steps and I am connected to something. It's, it's like magic. And then like crazy magic happens in my life because of them. It's like, you know, they would, they'd always be like, don't quit before the miracle happens <laughs> whenever I was whenever whenever I was at the meetings for, in the beginning. And seriously, like miracles happen. And I, I, I give it all to all the credit to the 12 steps, honestly. 
So when you started implementing the 12 steps, what yeah. was it about the 12 steps? Was it the structure? Was it the support of the community? And what was that process like? Were you having to learn it and practice it daily? How was that for your life? Well, it took me like two years to really get going with it so that it was like, like really integrated into my life. Like now I'm practicing them all day long and I don't even know that I'm doing it, you know, because it's just how I think and how I, how I behave now. But at the time, um, what, what it really gave me was my first experience with practical spirituality, because I'd always love, I love like the boot, the, the Buddhist emails that I would, that I would receive. And I would read like life's little instruction books. I don't know if you've ever seen those. I loved like, pra- you know, those little practical spirituality um, concepts, but this was like, okay, write down on paper, everybody you're mad at, everybody you're mad at, write down on paper, every fear that you have. And then like, oh my God, it turns out that I've created 99% of the situations in my life. And so it gave me my, like, not to sound cliche, but it gave me my power back. You know, it really helped me realize that life wasn't happening to me. It was happening through me. And that was a complete shift in how I thought about things because I thought I was a really nice girl who had a drinking problem and some some bad people in her life. And really, it was like, I've been creating my life from the start. And now I have the opportunity to um, to to create it the way I want it, not the, the way that's happening right now. That's huge. And yeah. you know, what's interesting is that I understand that from hearing more about your story, that that part of ta- tapping into that 12 step actually led you on a whole spiritual path. Yeah. You going to Harvard um, to study spirituality. So how even did tapping into that lead you to where you are today and the importance that spirituality has played in your recovery? Well, for me, 80%. So if there's anything that we want in this life, whether it's to relieve ourselves of of addiction, anxiety, if we want money, if we want career success, if we want love, 80% of the work is internal. 20% is the, you know, the third dimension, making phone calls, having conversations, hustling, whatever you want to call it. But 80% is the way that I'm perceiving the world around me because we're just, I'm deciding the kind of world that I want to see. And then I'm looking for confirmation of that. Um, So So my whole, like, once I really got that from the 12 steps, I was like, oh, I want to teach this to everybody. Like, everybody needs to know this, right? Because I didn't know that before. So it really did lead me to want to understand these these universal spiritual principles more deeply. So I did go to Harvard Divinity School for that. I created a a practice that people can do work with me um, privately. And it really does give you whatever you want in this life because um, once you're living by spiritual principles, there's nothing that the universe doesn't want for you that you that you don't want for yourself. And how do you look at your life today? I mean, you went on to become Harvard's first meditation advisor. You know, you've gone around, like you said, developing your own method to help people dealing with all kind of things through what you learned through the 12 steps. You're a mom now. How has all this come full circle for you? And what is life like for you today? Well, I mean, it's like a lot of three-year-old activities and I get to work with clients from all over the world now um, and, and share with them universal spiritual principles, which is what the 12 steps is based on. But I'm, I'm not teaching the 12 steps. You can go to a 12-step meeting and, 
and have that experience. Any, you know, you can Google 12 steps and find out how to do that and work with a sponsor. But what I'm doing is I, I get to teach this now um, universal spiritual principles to people who want to learn about them and really like live a life beyond my wildest dreams. Like this is beyond my wildest dreams to talk about getting sober 15 years ago. I remember when I first got sober, wishing to have 15. I was like, I can't wait to have 15 years sober. Like, what am I going to think about then? What's my life going to be like? And I have an incredible life today. And it really is because I got sober and worked the 12 steps, not just quit drinking, but I really got into the 12 steps that that was what changed my life. So if there was somebody watching today, um, I know people are saying here, your story is inspirational. And, you know, I love that you're able to be so transparent with us today. But, you know, there's somebody probably listening to this or who will listen on the replay who says, I'm where you are 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that person or what do you wish someone had said to you? I know you said it took a lot for you to get to that point of surrender. But if there was one phrase or one word or one message that you could give, what would that be? Yeah. So for me, I was so afraid that if I got sober, I wasn't going to have love again. I wasn't going to have sex again. I wasn't going to write a book. I wasn't going, my life wasn't going to happen if I got sober because I didn't know how to do life sober. And what happened was everything I wanted was on the other side of sobriety. Everything that I wanted was over there, but I had to just get honest with myself and I had to like turn myself in kind of and say like, okay, I give up. I'm not going to fight anymore. I placed my life in the hands of people who can, um, who can really help me get sober. And it's all on the other side for you. I promise. I really promise. That is such a great message to end on Cassie. Um, I just think your story has been powerful here tonight. And to know that on the other side of sobriety, that you found peace, you found joy, probably love, uh, you know, you have your mother now so much has changed. And now you're giving back to so many people in so many ways. And so we just want to thank you for sharing all that you've shared tonight. And I just want to give you one last opportunity. Is there any final words that you'd want to say? I think you touched on so much and you ended on that surrender, but I also wanted to just give you any parting thoughts. Yeah. I mean, for me, it really helped to start meditating for one minute a day. And so that, that really changed my life. So if you're newly sober, just one minute a day of sitting there and focusing on your breath can will change everything for you. That's good. So see, you're even giving us tools that we can take into place. I think the biggest thing, surrendering, know that there's life on the other side. Mm -hmm. And for somebody who's in recovery, just taking it one day at a time and meditation can help. And there's tools out there to help you live a sober life. And you are proof, Cassie, that 15 years later, that sobriety is possible, that you can do it. Amen. Thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. So that's going to do it for another episode of Addiction Talk. We want to thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you again, Cassie, for being so transparent and vulnerable with your story. And we'll see you again next time, everyone.